Hello and welcome back to another episode of Tackling Football with Chloe Singer. This past week, we saw three backup quarterbacks lead their teams to victory, the Chiefs offense returned to form, and a dominant performance by the Ravens. We'll start off this episode discussing key events from the weekend. Then we'll explore why a talented Chargers defense may be the worst unit in the league in a segment I'm calling The Price is Wrong. Lastly, we'll cap off this episode with game predictions for week eight. I'm so excited to get into everything. But first, if you haven't already, please follow the podcast, give this episode a like, and leave a comment letting me know your thoughts. This past week of games, we saw the good, the bad, the ugly, and a few surprises. Let's start with the good. Rookie receivers are making an instant impact right now. In week seven, we saw rookie receivers step into larger roles on offense and make big contributions. In Seattle, with DK Metcalf out with an injury, Jackson Smith and Jigma played his best game yet, putting up a team high, 63 yards receiving, and a touchdown. While undrafted rookie Jake Bobo made one of the most spectacular touchdown catches of the year, somehow finding a way to get his second foot in bounds to secure the grab as part of his 61-yard game. Meanwhile, in Minnesota, Jordan Addison seems to be doing his very best Justin Jefferson impression. Addison racked up 123 yards and two touchdowns versus the 49ers on Monday night. His second touchdown in particular was impressive as he wrestled away a would-be interception from Chardavius Ward to break free for a 60-yard score right before the half, undoubtedly changing the game. Elsewhere, Puka Nakua has continued to put up eye-popping stats as he tallied 154 yards receiving, Josh Downs of the Colts had 125 yards and a touchdown, and Dalton Kincaid had a team-high 75 yards. Now on to the bad. The Atlanta Falcons had three turnovers on Sunday in the red zone and two on the one-yard line. In a tight game on the road versus a divisional opponent, the Falcons were largely in control. Their defense was dominant, and the Buccaneers often struggled to move the ball against them. While the Falcons' offense by no means is elite, they had been able to move the ball particularly in the running game, giving them chances to get points on the board. Yet, on three occasions, Desmond Ritter fumbled the ball. The first fumble occurred right before the end of the first half. With the game tied at 10-10, the Falcons had driven the ball down to the Bucks' 11-yard line with a prime opportunity to get points and head into the locker room with a lead. Facing a third and goal with 25 seconds left in the half, Arthur Smith decided to use the Falcons' third and final timeout. So on the next play, the most important thing was for Ritter not to take a sack or turn the ball over. And as you can guess, given the title of this column, Ritter got sacked and turned the ball over. He fumbled. Fortunately for Ritter, at the beginning of the third quarter, the Falcons' defense was able to force a fumble and the Atlanta offense was able to take over 
at Tampa Bay's 27-yard line in prime position to score again. The offense managed to drive the ball down to the one-yard line, and on first and goal, Ritter fumbles the snap. So, Falcons get no points, game is still tied at 10-10. Late in the fourth quarter, the Falcons go on another strong offensive drive. On first and goal, the Falcons call a design run for Desmond Ritter. And it works. Just as he's about to stroll into the end zone for a touchdown, Buck safety Antoine Winfield Jr. comes flying out of nowhere and punches the ball out. Instead of a touchdown for the Falcons, it's a touchback for the Bucks. In any other game, these mistakes would have cost the Falcons. However, in this case, behind a stellar defensive effort, the Falcons were able to get away with it. I believe that this Falcons team has a pretty high ceiling. But if Ritter continues to turn the ball over like this, they won't reach that ceiling. Now onto the ugly. The Lions got absolutely crushed by the Ravens. In what was supposed to be one of the most tightly contested games of the weekend, between two playoff caliber teams, turned into an absolute demolition. So much so that Fox took the game off the national broadcast in favor of the Falcons-Bucks game. To put it plainly, the Lions got a reality check on Sunday. While their opening day win over the Chiefs was impressive, they hadn't really played any other tough competition. They lost to the Seahawks, and their other wins were versus the Falcons, Packers, Panthers, and Buccaneers. All game, the Lions had no answer to the Ravens on both offense and defense. The Lions did not get a first down in this game until the score was already 28-0 Ravens. That's ugly. The biggest surprise of the weekend was that the New England Patriots beat the Buffalo Bills. Obviously, the season has not gotten off to an ideal start for the Patriots as they got only their second win of the season in week seven. They've been uncharacteristically blown out of games, losing 38-3 to the Cowboys and being shut out versus the Saints 34-0. After losing to the lowly Raiders and former offensive coordinator Josh McDaniels, many journalists and fans alike proclaimed that Bill and the Patriots had reached an all-time low. In fact, Many were calling for the Patriots to move on from Bill Belichick after the season. But this weekend, Bill beat the Bills for his 300th regular season win as a coach, joining George Hollis and Don Shula as the only coaches to reach this mark. What makes Bill great is his ability to adapt his defensive approach to take away an opponent's strength. In the Buffalo Bills game, the Patriots knew that they had to apply pressure to force Josh Allen to make more rush decisions. The Patriots blitzed over 40% of the time and had a pressure rate of 40.9% in this game. I believe Bill Belichick has shown time and time again that he is a great defensive mind. But to generate wins, the defense needs to be complemented by a competent offense, or at least one that plays mistake-free. So far this season, the Patriots' win-loss record mirrors whether or not Mac Jones has thrown an interception. In all five Patriot losses this season, 
Jones has thrown for at least one interception. In their wins, he didn't. While this sounds like a simple fix, as Mac Jones can play low-risk, accurate football, the Patriots find themselves in a precarious position as an organization. Since Brady left for Tampa Bay, the Patriots have been in win-now mode, when they should have been moving into a rebuild. After going 7-9 in 2020 and missing the playoffs, the team spent more than $268 million on player contracts in free agency. Instead, of building through the draft. I believe that by chasing these stopgap measures, Bill created a team that was striving for mediocrity, a 500 record that could somehow, some way, find themselves in the playoffs. But now the Patriots are in no man's land. Mac Jones doesn't look like he has a ton of upside at the quarterback position, and their roster lacks talent and depth, particularly at wide receiver and on the offensive line. As a Jets fan with family in Boston, namely my grandma Ga and my great aunt Beverly, I have had to listen to years of Patriots gloating. So naturally I take a bit of joy in seeing the Patriots go through some organizational turmoil. This off season will be an interesting one for the organization as they will be faced with a decision on whether or not to pick up Mac Jones's fifth year option or to search for a new quarterback and start their rebuild. A new. Growing up, if I was sick and stayed at home from school for the day, I would watch The Price is Right, where contestants had to guess the price of ordinary household items for the chance to win prizes. The general gist of the show was that you had to guess as close to the retail price without going over. The NFL salary cap works similarly. Teams have a set amount of money, currently around $225 million, to construct a roster, and general managers try to get as close to this amount without going over. So this creates tough decisions for teams. Who should we pay and how much? It also means that when a large financial investment is made, those players must be successful. Currently, there are a few teams whose roster is overpaid and underperforming. Today, in the first installment of The Price is Wrong, we are going to focus on the Chargers' defense. The Chargers' defensive roster is full of talent. This group is led by Joey Bosa, Khalil Mack, and Derwin James, and they have a combined 15 Pro Bowls. Yet, this season, while defense has dominated across the league, the Chargers defense has struggled. Here's some statistics to put their poor play in perspective. The Chargers defense ranks last in yards allowed per game, 25th in points allowed per game. The defense has given up the most first downs via penalty, despite playing in six games so far due to an early bye week. And opposing quarterbacks have a passer rating of 105.6 against the Chargers, which is the second highest rate, only trailing the Broncos. When you have a talented roster that is underperforming, blame usually falls on the coaching staff. In this case, that would be head coach Brandon Staley, who calls the defensive plays, and defensive coordinator Derek Onslow. 
To understand their approach for the Chargers defense, we must first revisit the end of last season, when the Chargers blew a 27-0 lead against the Jaguars in the AFC wildcard round. Reflecting on the previous season, Staley emphasized the need for the Chargers to limit explosive plays. Quote, we have to tackle better on the edges. We have to make sure we put a roof on the deep part of the field. Those are going to be the areas we really need to focus on in the offseason. In preventing deep plays over the top of the defense has definitely been a priority for this group. But perhaps to the detriment of their ability to succeed as a unit. This past weekend in the first half versus the Chiefs, many remarked that the Chargers' defensive coverage was soft, meaning that they were giving too much space in the secondary to Chiefs' wide receivers. When I reviewed the footage, I noticed a couple of things. One, the Chargers are playing their safeties too deep, which has made them unable to contest 10 to 20-yard passes over the middle of the field. There is too big of a gap between the linebackers and the safeties, which has created large throwing windows. This has been true across their games, not just versus Kansas City. The second thing is that poorly engineered schemes have put the talent on this team out of position. There's a great article up on Bolts from the Blue, which is a Chargers fan page discussing how defensive spacing has been an issue for this defense. To break down the Chargers' issues with defensive spacing, I will read a few excerpts from the article that breaks down plays from the Chargers-Cowboys game two weeks ago. Quote, Against McCarthy's Cowboys, Staley used a lot of 3-4 fronts to provide some power up front against their revered offensive line. On this play in the first quarter, Staley pairs this front with a nickel personnel to match the Cowboys' empty five-wide look. The issue is that this leaves a single inside linebacker to protect the middle of the field. This is a pretty normal matchup. However, the spacing is all over the place because of the conflicting way Staley sets up his defense, and this creates one of the easiest throws for Dak Prescott. There are 18 yards between the top of the linebacker's drop and the top of the free safety's drop. This means that every in-breaking route is easier to hit because the quarterback doesn't have to use touch to sink the ball between the second and third level defenders. In Staley's split field quarters coverage, crossers cause an issue because the outside leverage that Jashir is playing with here can't help him once Lamb crosses midfield, and there are no defenders covering on the other side of the field. So when you combine all of these three alignment issues, you end up with a linebacker unable to affect the passing window from underneath, a safety too high to do anything about this, even if he has elite speed and processing. The design coverage player is in the wrong alignment to slow down this route, and nobody on the other side of the field to even try and put off a wide throw. So to summarize, the presence of deep safeties combined with the defensive front's alignment and the positioning of cornerback Josh Shear in coverage made this simple throw almost indefensible based off the combinations Staley employed in the scheme. The third thing you can see when you watch the film is mistakes, whether it's communicating transfers, playing leverage, or committing penalties. To me, mistakes indicate either a lack of discipline or 
players are out of position due to scheme as mentioned above or individual mistakes. Since Staley has arrived in LA, the Chargers defense has given up 37 plays of 40 or more yards, which is the second most in the league over this period. This means that the defense, which is designed to prevent big plays, is giving them up the most. What all of this leaves you with is a defense struggling to come up with answers. So where does the team go from here? I'm a big believer that players should not have to adapt to an offensive or defensive scheme, but that plays should be designed around the talent on the roster. So far this season, the Chargers traded away J.C. Jackson, a Pro Bowl cornerback, because he didn't fit the defense. Essentially, Brandon Staley has been trying to implement the defense he ran with the Los Angeles Rams in 2020. But he's dealing with a different roster than the group led by Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey. To turn this around, Staley will have to reevaluate each individual player's strengths and weaknesses and figure out what coverages allow them to excel. Even if this means deploying simpler fronts, so be it, because at least the coverage will be better and his elite players can play instinctively. Now it's time for my favorite segment, predictions. I went one and two last week on predictions, which brings my season total to 12 and eight. I'm looking to get back on track this week by targeting five game spreads. The first is the Chiefs, who are seven point road favorites versus the Broncos. The Chiefs finally put together a complete game on both offense and defense, and I like them to continue rolling versus the Broncos. In their first meeting, the Chiefs absolutely thumped the Broncos at home. While this game is on the road, they still hold the advantage amongst almost all position groups compared to the Broncos. Mahomes seems to have an answer for almost anything the defense can throw at you. And I like Kansas City to get to 7-1 and one behind a big win versus the Broncos. Give me the Chiefs, minus 7. The next game I want to talk about is the Los Angeles Rams versus the Cowboys. I get why the Cowboys are favored. They're coming off the bye, and they're seemingly the more talented team. But based on what we've seen so far, I'm not sure why they're such heavy favorites. Why are the Rams an underdog by almost a touchdown? I think the Rams actually have a pretty good chance to win this game outright. I think their offense can compete with any defense. And the Rams defense has been pretty good during the year. I think the Cowboys might get off to a bit of a slow start in this game. I think the Rams will hold the early lead. And while the Rams might not win... I think it will be a close game, about three or four points. So give me the Rams plus six and a half. The third game I want to talk about is the Houston Texans versus the Carolina Panthers. This is 
the battle of number one overall pick Bryce Young versus number two overall pick CJ Stroud. And I think we've seen during this year that CJ Stroud is much further along than Bryce Young. I love the way this Texans team is playing. Both teams are coming off the bye. Well, this could be one of the Panthers' better opportunities to get a win as their home versus a relatively inexperienced team. I think the Texans are actually a good team and not a team that has had good results so far. So give me the Texans, minus three. The fourth game I'm looking at this weekend is the Cleveland Browns taking on the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle. The Seahawks are three and a half point favorites versus the Browns, and I like them at home this weekend. While the Browns' defense is really scary, and Miles Garrett in particular has been wrecking games all year, I think Seattle's offensive front can hold up enough. I think that they'll be able to run away from Miles Garrett in scheme. I think Kenneth Walker can have a big game on the ground. And the Browns' offense just doesn't scare me at all. I don't think that they're a very capable group right now. So long as Seattle's defense can stop the run game, which I'm sure will be a priority, I like them to get this win. Then lastly, we have the Eagles taking on the Commanders. The Commanders are six and a half point home underdogs. And I think that they're the best value in this spread. The Eagles just had a big win versus the Dolphins and no doubt deserve props and recognition. But this is a divisional game and the Commanders always play the Eagles tight. The Commanders are home. I think this game will end up being much tighter than people think. I like the Commanders plus the points. That's all for today. If you enjoyed listening, please give this episode a like and leave a comment down below. I'll be back next week to discuss week eight and make some predictions for week nine. In the meantime, I'll be releasing clips to YouTube and on Instagram and TikTok. You can follow me on all socials at Chloe Tackles. Until next time, bye.